Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. This is the fourth in a series of seven interviews titled The Gershwin Project, all of which were intended to be used in a radio documentary on the collaboration between George and Ira Gershwin. Links to the previous three interviews can be found by going to the webpage for this podcast in the Area 941 section of kpfa.org. This interview with Michael Feinstein was recorded in San Francisco shortly after a performance by The Entertainer on January 2, 1991, and was intended as commentary for a KPFA morning concert that aired a couple of weeks later. It was also intended for use in the documentary. Michael Feinstein, long before he became a five-time Grammy winner and noted expert in the field of the American songbook, worked as Ira Gershwin's archivist for seven years, starting at the age of 20. In this brief interview, he focuses on a 1927 show, Strike Up the Band, which had just been recorded and released on Nonesuch Records. Now, you helped organize the Gershwin Archive with Ira, is that correct? That is correct. I met Ira Gershwin in July of 1977 and uh, spent six years, which turned out to be the last six years of his life, doing that. I was the last in a progression of people that had included uh, a gentleman named Lawrence Stewart, who had done a wonderful job with a good deal of the material. But there was so much of it that there still was a massive lyric sheets and such that had been uh, even as late as the 70s uncatalogued. Well, when you walked in and began doing that, you were a kid, pretty much. You were how old? 20. You were familiar, obviously, with the basic Gershwin works. Were you familiar with stuff like Strike Up the Band? I was familiar with uh, most of the songs from the shows, even the obscure songs. I knew the titles of a lot of the other pieces, but because they had never been recorded and many sections of the show were lost, I was not familiar with them. Certain pieces appeared in Ira's home in his own collection, and then I became acquainted with some other little components of the show. Did you ever have a point where you found sheet music you'd never seen before, suddenly rushed to a piano and started to play it? I always had experiences like that in Ira's home because sometimes I'd find variant editions of, of famous songs with, with uh, discrepancies in them. I remember in connection with Strike Up the Band that there is the music in that collection for the verse of a song that was intended for Strike Up the Band and we never found the lyric sheet and uh, it's this wonderful little piece of martial sounding music but it's only this like this 16 bar melody I also found one of the early versions of the title song Strike Up the Band which uh, had been uh, there was a, a notation on the lyric sheet uh, not the lyric sheet but on the manuscript that said uh, SUTB 27 and uh, it was just a melody line of an early version that Gershwin had written, George, that is. He had written five or six different versions of the title song until they settled on the one that we now know. Now, was that one of the versions that he suddenly, there's a story in uh, the biography by Jablonski that he suddenly says, Ira, come here, I found the march, I found the march. 
No, that, that story was about the one that was finally used. But this was one of the earlier ones that uh, everybody thought was lost, and there it was. <laughs> Did you play it? Yeah. It was interesting. It was not as interesting as the one that he settled on, however. Now, Strike Up the Band is, is a curious piece because it didn't get past Philadelphia, and yet it got good critical responses in Philadelphia. It was a political satire in a time when there weren't political satires, and it was a book musical in a time when there weren't book musicals. Did Ira ever talk about the genesis of it, how it came, how they came to meet up with Kaufman and decide to write this? He uh, spoke very little about the initial creation of the show. He talked more about the, uh, the revival of the show, I guess, because that was the successful version of it. He uh, didn't talk a lot about his failures, about his flops, and I think that if he were around today, he would probably... Uh, much rather see the complete 1930 show be recorded as opposed to the 27 because it still would have carried bad memories for him. There were a number of very interesting songs that were cut from the original version of the show. And of course, plot-wise, there were uh, uh, some major changes made that made it more palatable or accessible to the public. But he still uh, preferred the 1930 version. That's kind of curious because I know a lot of composers... Bernstein, for example, have a warm place in their hearts for their failures. He just wanted to ignore them completely. For the most part, Ira wanted to ignore his failures, yeah. There were a couple of things that, that uh, had failed that had good songs in them that he liked, but the first version of Strike Up the Band must have been very, very painful for him. Now, do you know how they met up with Kaufman at all? I don't. There are so many things that I wish I had asked Ira, you know, uh, right after he died when I still was in the phase where I'd think of something, I'd say, oh, I'll have to ask Ira, where I'd say, oh, damn, I didn't ask him. There is the story which you tell on your, in your show about the genesis of The Girl I Love, and I know you've been singing The Girl I Love since for 85 or so. Can you give a little brief description of that? The Girl I Love was uh, created at a time when the song The Man I Love was an obscure piece of music. Ma the Man I Love had been composed in 1924 for a show called Lady Be Good, and originally the famous music that we know now, da -dee, da -dee, da -dee, was actually the verse of another song called The Man I Love, and they found that music so insistent that they turned it into the chorus of the song. The show was removed from, uh, the song rather was removed from the show, a little tongue-tied, because when Adele Astaire sang it in Lady Be Good, it slowed up the action. And, uh, for Strike Up the Band, they felt that it would be good as as a song that would advance the plot, and Ira created a uh, another version of the song called The Girl I Love, which was sung by Morton Downey Sr. <laughs> Is this any relation to... no. Yes, it's Morton Downey Jr.'s father. Really? Yes, yes indeed. Uh, Morton Downey Sr. was an extraordinarily... Uh, popular star, a huge star of radio, and one of the first artists to sell millions of records back in the 20s. He was a very, very big name. But because the entire show flopped, The Man I Love once again fell into obscurity along with this lyric called The Girl I Love. Eventually, The Man I Love became popular when it was revived, more or less, by Helen Morgan in this country, and uh, uh, Lady Mountbatten in London had uh, heard the song 
in the States, brought a copy back to London, and it's really in London where it first achieved popularity. But the interesting thing about The Girl I Love is that Ira had essentially forgotten about the lyric, and one day, going through some of his files, I found this lyric called The Girl I Love. And I showed it to him, and I said, what do you think? And he said, oh no, no, this is terrible. And he ripped it, he tore it up. Because at that point, he felt that he should not meddle with a song as famous as The Man I Love and try and create an alternate version. I was horrified that he ripped up the lyric, but I dutifully did not retrieve it from the wastebasket as I wanted to. Then a couple of years later, a complete set of the lyrics for the 1927 version of Strike Up the Band turned up in the New York Public Library. A photocopy of them was sent to Ira, and once again, he had in his possession, among other lyrics, the lyric for The Girl I Love. Well, on that day, he was in a much better mood and was more kindly disposed towards the lyric, and he looked at it and said, well, that's not bad. And I said, well, is it okay if I sing it? He said, sure. <laughs> and Strike Up the Band itself has a very curious history also. It went through, as you said, a, a number of versions until finally the Eureka I Founded version Somewhere along the line, UCLA got a hold of it. Oh, yes. Well, in 1936, George and Ira, well, actually, Ira changed his lyric as a, uh, as a fight song for UCLA called Strike Up the Band for UCLA. That was in 1936 when they uh, came out to California to write uh, the songs for a couple of Fred Astaire projects. I don't know exactly how they got corralled into doing that, but there are photos of George and Ira at UCLA, one photo of George playing for some of the, the students. And Ira said that uh, he got season football passes, which he received to all the UCLA games up until the time of his death, and that was his royalty for having created that special version. But of course the other thing is that the, the, uh, the title song, Strike Up the Bad, was one that had different verse lyrics through the years. Ira had changed the lyrics many, many times because he didn't uh, want to uh, be perceived as a warmonger and was afraid that people would uh, misperceive the uh, uh, meaning of the lyric outside of the context of the show. And so he created throughout the life of the song four different verses. Well, the original version is anti-war. Yes, yes, but then there was the one during the Second World War about the the Hun is singing his hymn of hate and all that sort of thing. So then he, of course, rewrote it again. And then later, he allowed another lyric change for the show My One and Only, which was, there is, there's more to be won instead of there's a war to be won. So he took out that reference altogether. One other aspect of Strike Up the Band, probably the most striking aspect, is the politics of it. People don't really associate the Gershwins with political fervor, like they might say Brecht or Weil or whoever. Mm. What were their politics, do you know? Well, Ira and George were both, uh, of course, very liberal, liberal gents, and they were friends with many people who were heavily involved in politics. Yip Harburg, of course, was very political throughout, throughout his life. They mainly stayed out of politics because that, that was a time when they didn't feel that it would be appropriate to really uh, heavily mix the two. And Strike Up the Band was certainly uh, a revolutionary show of its kind. And it's interesting to note that when they wrote their second uh, political musical, or operetta as they referred to, of the I Sing, they won a Pulitzer Prize, or actually Ira won a Pulitzer Prize, because at that time a Pulitzer Prize could not be given for music. So the team of Kaufman, Maury Riskin, and Ira Gershwin received a Pulitzer Prize, and George did not. Ira felt so guilty about that that he split the prize money 
with his brother. I mean, he just felt terrible about it. Uh, but he was always very, very proud of of the I Sing. Strike Up the Band was a show that was essentially lost. I still do not know if they have the libretto for the 1930 version. The 1927 version, for which this recording was made, has existed all along. But the problem has been that they had the 1930 score and not the 1930 libretto, and vice versa for the 27 show. Very curious. What about Let Him Eat Cake, which was the most weird and radical? In fact, uh, Ira is quoted as saying, if Strike Up the Band is a satire on war, of the icing is a satire on politics, Let Him Eat Cake is a satire on practically everything. Let Him Eat Cake was, it was a huge disaster. And I remember asking Ira why Let Him Eat Cake was such a failure when it was created by the same team that had created uh, of the I Sing, and Iris explained that sometimes things work and sometimes things don't. He said that with of the I Sing, from the moment they started working on it, uh, everything fell into place. It was extraordinary that there were very few changes in the show from the time it tried out out of town uh, till it came to New York. It was one of those things that it just all clicked, and Iris said that that was a rather rare occurrence, and let Him Eat Cake came at a time where the depression had, had heightened. Ira felt that they were too acerbic, that they had just gone too far. They were making fun of too many things, where throttle bottom at the end of the show is, is, is hung and uh, guillotined, uh, rather. Uh, it's, it just uh, was a, uh, uh, a very, very dark musical. And still, today, when, when people uh, have seen it in the one or two little revivals it's had, it's just still, it still doesn't work. It just never gelled and it is one of those shows that has a great score uh, a rather weird score but but it's not a revivable musical now your recording your contributions to this recording you mentioned before we turned on the tape that you helped bring some of the actual songs to the attention of the people putting the recording of strike up the band together yes for quite some time I had been collating material on strike up the band along with other materials while I was working for Ira and uh, there was always kind of like this treasure hunt to try and find more material from the 27 version. And there were a few things that existed in Iris' collection. For example, a song called Hoping That Someday You'd Care, which was replaced in the 1930 version by the song Soon. And it was a wise replacement because Soon is really a better song. And uh, in many instances, they upgraded the material. Yet for both of those songs, they used the same verse music but then in the 27 version there was a song uh, called Homeward Bound, which is a beautiful piece that was deleted from the 1930 version. But getting back to, <laughs> to your question, in 1982 somebody opened a box in a warehouse in Secaucus, New Jersey and discovered all of this musical theater material. It was held in the Warner Brothers Music Warehouse and they were getting ready to throw it out because they needed space for their new printed folios. And somebody called me and said, you'd better see if Mr. Gershwin will let you come out here because we think that there's some important stuff here. I asked Ira about it, and he said, oh, that's ridiculous. They couldn't possibly have anything from Strike Up the Band because it was a flop show, and who would have kept it? And, of course, that's what happened. When a show was unsuccessful, frequently on the last night of the show, Ira said that the musicians would throw the music up in the air, they would rip it up. It was of no value any longer. It was a, a project that had failed, and that was it. And so he reluctantly allowed me to go east to uh, examine this material, 
there were 80 boxes of musical theater material from which I collected about four or five filled with Gershwin. And among that material, there was a lot of stuff from Strike Up the Band, including the setting that George Gershwin had written in 1927, the soprano setting, specifically of The Man I Love. There was Homeward Bound. There was an early orchestration of the song Strike Up the Band. Uh, there were uh, some other little sections of recitative and some scenes that uh, were uh, previously unknown. And so a good portion of the 27 version turned up in that warehouse. Uh, the other thing I was going to mention is that this is not a note-for-note -note authentic recreation of the 1927 show. There are a lot of questions about uh, many aspects of the show, and uh, it is not an authentic recreation in that sense, because nobody really knows uh, how the 27 version was, was staged and, and exactly what material was used. There are many questions with these shows. Even with Let Him Eat Cake, there's an overture that was written for the show, yet Ira claims it was not used in the theater. Somebody else says, well, yes, it was used. There's questions like that. But uh, one has to be very careful when they say that this is the original version, because it's, it's really not. There's even one number that, uh, for which Burton Lane composed the verse music. Meadow Serenade. Meadow Serenade, yes. Now, Meadow Serenade, for example, never turned up in any of the boxes of material from Secaucus. It had been written down in the 1940s by Kay Swift from memory. So it's an approximation in the 1940s of her remembrance of a thing she had heard in 1927. And then because the uh, introductory music did not exist, I suggested that they get Burton Lane uh, to write the verse music because Burton is uh, 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 the gentleman who... Uh, was a close friend of George's and Ira's and uh, would have written it in the appropriate style. Moving on for a second to George Gershwin, what do you think? I mean, everything about George Gershwin's music, or a great deal of it, you hear it, you know it's uniquely Gershwin. What do you think that is? What does he do that makes him unique? Well, I suppose one could go into a technical analysis about the, the blue notes and all of that, but I'm, I've never been one that, that likes to respond in those terms, basically because I'm not able to. <laughs> I mean, I could, but the best way I can respond is to say that there was a sound that, that George Gershwin created that came from wherever the place of, <laughs> wherever inspiration comes from that was uniquely his. And it's interesting to note that even in his early songs, many of which did not have that quote Gershwin sound, he was experimenting at the same time with a, a concert form, with this other sound. I had asked Ira about about the Gershwin sound. And in 1922, he wrote a uh, mini opera used in uh, George White's Scandals called Blue Monday. And in that piece, it has full-blown uh, reflections of what was to come with the Gershwin sound. And Iris said that George always thought in two voices, if you will, uh, in more of a pop style and then in a concert style that that synthesized or combined the jazz elements and the blues elements of American music. And then as he matured, he combined those elements into his popular songs. There's always much speculation about what he would have written had he lived. And Ira used to respond to that question by saying that he felt that his brother not only would have continued to write 
quote, serious music or classical music, but he would have also continued writing songs because they were equally important to him. And he never would have forsaken one for the other. And indeed, at the time of his death, he had conceived a symphony and a string quartet, neither of which he was able to write down. But he'd actually performed them a little bit. I mean, to friends? No, no. He had uh, written down a little theme for a string quartet. He had been talking a lot about this quartet, which he said uh, was driving him crazy, and he just had to write it down. So he, he spoke of it. And there are just little jots of things that he had written down, but many of them are just melody lines or, or just a couple of bars here and there. So who knows what, what would have come. You've been listening to an interview with Michael Feinstein, who worked as Ira Gershwin's archivist, and it was recorded on January 2nd, 1991, and is the fourth in a series of interviews known collectively as the Gershwin Project. The webpage in the Area 941 section of kpfa.org for this podcast features links to the previous three interviews.